Part six of John Bull's Vineyard by Hubert de Castella. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fourteen Pasteur's Experiments. Mentioned in a lecture before the London Society of Arts in eighteen seventy nine. My reader will remember that Pasteur's discovery had been communicated to us by an English brewer who had come to Australia with Pasteur's book on beer. We had only the loan of that book for a day or two, but the experiment was fixed in my memory, and I had communicated to a friend, Mr. Cosmo Newbury, CMG, the analytical chemist of the Victorian government. My surprise at not finding a mention of this experiment in any book on wine made me desire to see Pasteur's study on the beer again. I went with Mr. Newbury to the public library. To my dismay, we could not find the identical book we both had seen before. Numerous other works did not mention the experiment, and I began to feel as if I had dreamt the whole. Here you are, said Mr. Newbury, who, familiar with the subject, had searched in other quarters for the mention of the discovery, and he handed me the following out of Dr. Graham Cantor's lectures before the Society of Arts, 15th December, 1879. If you take an ordinary grape, well grown in the south of Europe, you will find a beautiful bloom upon it. That bloom partly consists of minute organisms and dust that has fallen on the skins of the grape. Now, Pasteur proved it was that dust adhering to the outside of the grape that sets up fermentation in the expressed juice of the grape. He so arranged his experiment that he could take from the inside of the berry a part of the juice without any trace of the dust on the skin coming in contact with it. And with proper means taken to prevent any dust coming in contact with the juice, this juice would not ferment. On the other hand, when he took a small portion of the dust on the skin of the grape and added it to the juice from the interior of the grapes, he got vinous fermentation. I went home comforted. Not only had I not dreamt it, but this admirable experiment, unnoticed in so many wine books, had been mentioned in scientific circles in England. Had John Bull's vineyards been near, instead of in Australia and at the Cape, the application would have been made long since. The book on wine by Palacci, a most complete and excellent work in octavo, of 659 pages, illustrated, a fourth edition dated 1883, mentions at great length Pasteur's microscopic discoveries of the diseases of the vine. About his experiment of 1878, so clear, so tangible to the ordinary vignon, not a word. Polacci summarises thus a dissertation on the origin of the ferment. Air is the vehicle of the ferment, which for the greatest part, yet in germ, finds in must a ground in which it can take birth, nascere, live, develop and reproduce itself, reprodursi. Perhaps I should leave alone questions beyond a common observer and avoid bringing a hornet's nest about my head, but is the word reprodursi right? Since the ferment is composed of minute organisms first floating in the air, next deposited on the grape, can these reproduce themselves in the must without air, like phylloxera in the ground? Nature 
perfect in everything. Deposits probably on the skin of each individual berry, a quantity of germs sufficient to transform its contents into wine. When they have done their function, these organisms must die. If they were to multiply in the liquid mass of the must, as long as there is saccharine matter, would not all wines be equally well made? Is it not because they do not reproduce themselves and cannot be introduced in the must without an atmospheric circumstance that there are well-constituted and badly-constituted wines, according as to how these organisms have been saved or introduced, how, once developed, they have been left undisturbed to complete their work? On account of the necessity of a proper proportion between the fermentability of the must and its richness in sugar, it is all important for the vigneron in warm Australia to gather his fruit when the balance is best established, when the grapes are in full bloom and not overripe. A production of sugar which destroys that proportion leaves the wine sweet. Chapter 15 Mr. Cosbo Newbury's Application of Pasteur's Discovery Raw fruit enters Victoria free. Jam pays a duty. A jam-making firm of Tasmania exported large quantities of plums to Melbourne. The difficulty was that raw fruit could not be carried without being spoiled by fermentation during the voyage, and on boiled fruits there was the duty. They consulted Mr. Newbury on the subject. He suggested killing the bloom, the ferment, by immersion in sulphurous gas. It was a complete success so much so that the custom officers, when barrels of plums thus treated arrived without any trace of fermentation, demanded the duty on jam, and were only with some difficulty brought to let them enter as raw fruit. The process of this preservation is very simple. A little powder of sulphur put in a tube is set fire to, and the fumes are conveyed by a pipe in the fruit barrel, full of water. Or a solution of sulphurous acid may be used, and water sufficiently impregnated with it poured upon the fruit. Peaches, apricots, apples and plums, placed in jars filled with sulphurous water, can be kept as firm and as fresh as at the time they were picked from the tree. Not for eating raw, for the sulphurous acid penetrates into the fruit itself, but for eating when cooked or for jam making. The sulphurous acid evaporates by boiling, leaving behind no traces whatever. Stewed peaches, baked apples with all their size and fragrance can be obtained at all seasons by this simple way of preserving. At a cost of a few pence only, a housekeeper can keep fruit in a store until wanted. To the jam manufacturer, the grand advantage of this process is that it enables him to choose his own time to make his preserves. The fruit season is short, if the fruit has to be used immediately, men and plants must be procured on an extensive scale. If it can be kept for any length of time, instead of hiring twenty men for three months and closing his establishment for the rest of the year, the manufacturer need only employ three or four hands permanently, better trained, and work at his leisure. Truly, there is nothing new under the sun. In continuing his researches, Mr. Newbury found that he was going over very old ground, that long ago, before jam-making became an industry, 
The good old housewife filled her jars with the fumes of burning sulphur, and then put in her gooseberries to keep for the winter. But we are in the age of progress. He hopes to improve the housekeeper's process to such an extent that he may send fresh Australian fruit for the table to the coming exhibition in London. Chapter 16 Italian Methods To give to my English reader an idea of the confusion of practices propounded to the vigneron, of the vagueness of the theories on winemaking adopted even in great wine countries, consequently, to place before him the difficulties which have beset the grower in Australia, I will now translate a short chapter on white winemaking from the recent book of Cantoni, Milan, 1882. This book was given to Mr. James Smith in Italy as one of the best authorities on viticulture. It is excellent on many points, but on the subject of fermentation of white grapes, it is truly surprising. I give the chapter in full. White Wines The white table wines are manufactured by pressing the grapes on the wine press and by fermenting only the liquid part in the casks. Sometimes the stalks are taken off, the berries are crushed and left to ferment with the juice. Sometimes, besides the berries, one half of the stalks is left. At other times, the white grapes are treated in the same manner as the red. White wines are also made from red grapes, lightly crushed and compressed. In every one of these cases, the wine takes different characters. In the first case, the liquid being extracted by pressure, is put in middle-sized casks, which are filled almost entirely. After 24 or 36 hours, a movement of fermentation takes place, which augments the mass of the liquid, and finishes not only by filling all the space in the cask, but overflows through the bunghole at the top. That which overflows is a viscous scum, composed of ferment, composta da fermento, and of gummy and mucilaginous matter expelled from the cask by the carbonic acid resulting from fermentation. From that moment it is necessary to keep filling the casks so that the scum does not fall to the bottom instead of being disgorged through the bunghole as we said. The fermentation lasts from 15 to 20 days, the shorter as the grapes are richer in sugar. Riuscendo tanto più breve quanto più zuccherine siano le uve, and the temperature higher. The wine is then drawn off into other casks entirely filled, but the bunghole is not hermetically closed, or it is closed with an hydraulic bung, to allow the rest of the carbonic acid produced by the slow fermentation which follows to escape. In spring, the wine is perfectly clear and can be drawn off into other casks or bottled in bottiglie. That wine remains richer in gummy and mucilaginous matters than in alcohol, in acids and in astringent matters, because the action of the press does not extract the inside of the berries, whilst the greater part of the glucose and of the colouring, astringent and extractive matters remain in the solid part of the mark. For this reason, these wines become early insipid and viscous. They become fatty, filano, and keep a short time. The mark resulting from such pressing can be used with some advantage to make small wine, vinello, or white wine, alla petio, sugar and water added to mark. 
when it is not considered better to add it to fresh must of red grapes, especially in less favourable years. The white wines made from grapes from which the stalks are eliminated and which are made to ferment with the berries become of a yellow amber colour. They are more alcoholic, also more aromatic, and keep better than those made by the first method. The addition of about half the stalks causes the wine to be not so soon fit to drink, but it keeps better. By treating the white grapes as the red ones, the wine loses a little of the delicacy sought in white wines, but keeps much better. In France, the best white wines are made from a slight pressure of red grapes. The colour is entirely taken off by repeated sulphuring at each racking off. They do not turn fatty and keep better than those of white grapes. For the white wines which get fatty, aeration is advisable with the addition of 6 or 7 grams per hectolitre, 22 gallons, of a solution of 200 grams of tannin in 1 litre of alcohol at 95 degrees. The acid dissolves the gum and mucilage and also precipitates a portion of the albuminous matter. This is all that is said about the making of white wines. Is it not surprising that a book published four years ago in a great wine country such as Italy, a country eager to propagate the best theories, considering the millions of money the wine brings to her lands, should be so far behind times? Cantoni's book contains on other subjects many excellent records, much valuable information and good directions, but as to the manufacture of white wines, a vigneron who follows him can only fall from one danger into another. He quotes the special pressing adopted in France for making sparkling champagne, as if it were applied to the best non-sparkling white wines, as if there were no wines of Sauterne, of Bassac, of Messot, of Condrieux. In describing the method most generally used in Italy, the first mentioned in his chapter, he declares that the result of that manipulation is bad, but he does not give directions to improve it. The practices he indicates are all faulty. He says that the scum ejects some ferment. Why should the ferment be allowed to be ejected when it is so precious? Later on he says that, by the rapid pressure on the press, the greater part of the glucose and other useful matters remain in the refuse, the mark. Why does he not advise proper means to secure them for the must? The constant filling up which he indicates as necessary is certainly injurious. In a northern European country, where the must is so poor in sugar that there is only one step between alcoholic fermentation and acetification, a grower may be tempted to keep filling his casks. But in warm countries, the carbonic gas, so abundant, acts like a thick coat of oil which prevents any danger of alteration so long as any fermentation goes on. Constant filling up disturbs that fermentation, and an exaggerated disgorging robs the wine in every way, even in aromas. Some years ago, having tried this system of disgorging, we collected the scum from several casks into one small vessel. It was must from Riesling grapes, a particularly delicately flavoured kind, that which gives the wines of the Rhine. For some days the liquid resulting from the subsiding of that scum had quite a perceptible bouquet, 
similar to the scent of the flowers of the grapes in spring. As there was no strength in that liquid, it turned putrid a few days afterwards, and had to be thrown away. But if these aromas had been left in the must, they would have been preserved by the natural alcohol of the wine. Our Italian author says, The mark resulting from the pressing by the first method can be utilised to make small wine, vinello, sugar wine, alla petio, etc., etc. What precepts! It amounts to willfully separating the elements which nature intended to make one perfect wine, so as to make, by three separate manipulations, three bad products. First a wine without virtue, next some piquette, lastly, wine made of water and sugar. These are miserable resources for the utilisation of the spoiled gifts of providence. The chapter translated concludes by recommending as a remedy a solution of tannin, nut gall generally. Again and again, let us say that nature has put in the grape itself all that is wanted, if we only find out how to obey her laws. Chapter 17. La Gresse In the short Italian article just translated, Fattiness in the Wine, La Gresse, is mentioned three times. It is a disease common to poor wines only, to those made from musts badly constituted, or in cold countries where the vintage has often to be gathered before the grapes are ripe. The wines suffering from that malady become slimy and thick. When poured out, they fall in a long continuous streak like oil. The French call them gras et filon, the English say ropey, the Italians say of them filano, in all cases, this alteration is due to the poverty of the must, either resulting from the vigneron's fault, or from causes over which he has no control, the inclemencies of the season. Formerly, this disease was very common in wines intended for champagne-making, as Pinot Noir, a red grape, is the basis of the finest champagnes. To avoid a red tint in the must, it is necessary when it is squeezed, to effect a lesser pressure than with ordinary white grapes. The wines thus prepared are deficient from the first. Fifty years ago, Monsieur François, a chemist of Chalon, discovered that an addition of tannin was an absolute remedy of this malady. In Champagne, since the use of tannin, the disease of La Gresse only subsists as a remembrance of ancient disasters. For this special manufacture, for the delicate art of champagne-making, which requires great skill or encounters heavy losses, Monsieur François's discovery was a national benefit. But should it be necessary for ordinary white wines, in a warm country like Italy, where the grapes ripen to perfection, and contain always all the elements necessary to constitute good musts? The Count Odard, the first of the French enologists, the greatest observer of vines and wines, has laid down the following axiom. Well-made wines are never sick. Les vins bien faits ne sont jamais malades. This is absolutely true. The Count Odard was the perfect wine-grower. His whole life was spent in studying and recording facts. In his numerous books, he opposed them to many haphazard theories. A capable judge of scientific questions, he was a pupil of the Polytechnic School of Paris. 
He was, as a landed proprietor, a wine grower, and a man of the world, an admirer of pure good wines only. As he died before Pasteur's greatest discoveries, it was not given him to witness the last advance of the chemistry of the wine. In any case, he may be pardoned for his sarcasms and irony at the application of that science to counterfeit products which have been in such vogue, first at the time of the invasion of the Oedium, and again since then of the Phylloxera. We hear so much nowadays of the vin du sucre, the substitute for real wine, that a short exposé of the manufacture à la pétiole will not be out of place. End of part six.